Well, good morning. <clears throat> Welcome back. Um, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, hope everyone's in good spirits. Got an Alabama win. Auburn had a bye. LSU is one of my teams. They went down in a sad loss yesterday. And then Notre Dame, one of my other teams, also went down in a very sad loss. Florida State won. That's my third team. Um, there's always something to hold on to, right? Um, let, me, um, let me pray, and we'll dive back into our series. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your amazing love for us. I just ask that you would open our hearts and ears to hear from you, that we would be transformed by your love, transformed by your truth, that we would have the humility to see things as they are and the courage to move forward as you would have us move forward. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so this is, this is talk number four of a five-week series about the narrative of marriage. And just a quick recap, I know people have been in and out. So the first week, um, we laid out the idea of the five parts of any narrative. So we had the setting was the first part, the plot, conflict, the characters, and then the theme. So we've talked about the setting, that was week one, which is looking around and seeing, well, where are we in our marriages? What's the story we're living out right now? What kind of story is it? Are we satisfied with this story? Do we want a different story? Do we want to change something? It's the embarrassing, like, there's no other way in besides this way. Good morning. Welcome. Hey. <laughs> yeah, they're here somewhere. I know. Thank you. I'm always forgetting. So seeing where we are in the story and saying, is this, is this where we want to be? What is the setting? Right? And the second is the plot. What, what are we supposed to do? How do we do this? We took a look at some of the different sources that would inform us about what marriage is about, whether it's our culture and the different mixed messages we get there, people that we respect who've done marriage well, looking at some scriptural examples of how to do it, and also looking at some of the research on how to do it, and a little bit of how not to do it. In the third week, we talked about the conflict. Now, any good story is going to have conflict. Without conflict, you are not going to have any growth. Nobody likes conflict, of course. Nobody says, yes, let's go fight tonight, honey, so we can grow. It's just, it's just not how we're wired, and anyone who tells you that would be lying to you. But to be able to shift it and say, what we're trying to do in conflict is be good storytellers. How do we tell a good story? Remember we talked about what makes a good storyteller, someone who's engaged with their topic, who genuinely cares about it, who pulls the audience in, who understands where the audience is and relates what they're saying to that audience so they can understand it well. And if there's any one piece to take from that last time, time number three was your goal in conflict Anybody dare to throw it out there? What's the goal? What's the main goal? Main thing you're trying to do in conflict? Lose gracefully. Lose gracefully. <laughs> 20 points to the man in the second row. <laughs> and if, if you can't do that, um, which you probably can't, not you in particular, but just men in general, it's, it's to understand, right? If you go into conflict thinking, my goal is to understand what's happening with you deeply. To understand, the other word I used was your context. Where are you coming from in this? Then eventually there's going to be some sort of win in that situation. But if I go in thinking, my goal is to make you understand where I am. My goal is to make you see what I'm seeing, then you're going to lose. Because even if you win that particular battle, that particular fight, you've lost the war. I'm trying to understand the context. I'm trying to understand where you're coming from. Just to summarize as well, I talked about five different pieces to that. The first was that interactional synchrony, which is just a big word, and it means 
I see where you are. I adjust myself to where you are. It's like a nice dance, and you adjust yourself to where I am. So I'm not just plowing ahead with whatever I want to do. I'm aware of where you are, and we're adjusting to each other. We've got interactional synchrony, engagement, and genuineness. I care about what's going on. And the genuine piece, if you remember the different parts of a, a message that gets communicated, the tone of voice, the body language, and the content, the most important is your body language. Why? Because your body language says what you really feel, what you really think, and you can't really lie with your body. So if you're pretending to care in a conflict and you don't really give a darn, that's what gets communicated to your partner. So if you can't come at this with genuineness and real empathy, there's really, there's really some knowing glances around the room. Uh, let me pat your leg. I understand, honey. If you can't get there, don't have the argument at that point in time. If you really can say, I, I do want to, under, as frustrated and as angry as I am, I do want to understand, then you can go there, right? That's how you genuinely can get engaged. Um, you have to have safety and clarity in that. You have to have that empathy I talked about and then humility. Am I able to put myself in this place to understand where you are? Okay. So that's, that's where we've gone so far. I think I gave you a couple of practical pieces about in the moment, if you're lost in it, you can ask that clarification question. Hey, when you said that, I, I was kind of thinking this or it felt like this. Did I, did I get that right or, or am I off base? So instead of just reacting because of an assumption, I've checked in with you to see, am I understanding where you are? You can clear up a problem, nip it in the bud before it grows. And then also the principle that you have three minutes to get any argument right. If you do not get it, Going in the right direction within three minutes, the chance of it having a positive outcome, I think, is 4%. Right? So if you're there five minutes in going, we're just not getting anywhere, stop. Don't keep going. You're just going to do damage. Okay? Now, if you're going to stop, come back later to revisit that topic so you can get somewhere. But essentially, you've got three minutes to begin to get on a page of, I'm trying to understand you. I want to see where you're coming from. And we're doing this in a, in a manner that demonstrates that compassion. Okay? Got it? That's where we are so far. Now today, we're talking, lots of laughter in the second row. Anything you want to share there? Oh, I love coming back. Mm. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Totally stripped of all dignity. Yes. <laughs> that's right, that's right. If we were in my counseling office, I would explain that for a while, but suffice it to say, yes, you can call the time out, but you gotta, you got to come back. Uh, today we're talking about the heart, the heart of marriage, uh, the heart of the story, what is the essence of marriage? Now, let me throw out the impossible question just to get us started. And I'm just suggesting an idea here, but if you were to say, okay, what, what do I think the essence of marriage is? What is this all about? I know it's an impossible question. If you've got even a, a throw it on the wall, see if it sticks thought, what, what would it be? Anybody? The answer, of course, is sex, but uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll add some other pretty things to make it sound more palatable. Um, it's got to be the draw <coughs> It's got to be what's that? It's got to be bigger than, uh, it's got to be teaching us about the Lord, a means of bringing us down. That's a great answer, right? Maybe there's something bigger than us that's going on here. Absolutely. And that's... That's part of today. That's part of uh, the next time too. That we're what we're looking at. That is a that's a great one. Anybody else hazard another thought in there? Okay. So sex and something bigger than us are the answers that we've got so far. 
Now remember, remember in our yes. Dying to self. We're getting there today as well, right? That fits in with there's something bigger than us that's going on. I think those are absolutely right. None of these are easy, and they all sound like good Sunday school answers, and they are good answers. It's hard to do. We're going to take a look at what, what does this really mean? What does this really mean for us? So the fourth part of the story, it's the characters. This is what we're really talking about today. You, your spouse, me, my spouse. This is what this is about. Let me show you what really happens. Okay. This is this is the marriage narrative that goes on for pretty much every couple out there. And I'm going to take a minute to walk through all these different parts and hopefully time this right so that I don't run out of all my time. I'll go ahead and put the old man glasses on now too. All right, so the first step is what everybody knows, um, the enchantment phase. So this is when you fall in love. Everything is blissful. Everything is wonderful. You're basically living in Jerry Maguire's You Complete Me stage, right? Um, I have to be with you, right? I want to be with you. It's great being with you. I think I mentioned this before, but there's an anthropologist, Helen Fisher, who studied relationships, and she's compiled a lot of research about the falling in love process. Uh, she's over at Rutgers University, and she did all these brain scans of people who are falling in love. And the brain scans that they did were nearly identical to the brain scans of drug addicts. Okay. Which to me, when you think about it, makes perfect sense. right? What, what do you say when you're in that falling in love process? <coughs> Excuse me. I can't live without you. I'll do anything to be with you. I'll go without sleep or food just to be near you. I'll drive all night to come see you. I can work on three hours of sleep if necessary to make this happen. I can't stand separation from you. I'm going to die if I don't get to see you tonight. I'm miserable when you're not around. I can't get you out of my mind. I can't focus at work, etc., etc. Every moment I spend with you just makes me want more of you. That sounds like addiction to me, right? You're talking about the development of tolerance. I've got to be around you. Without you, there's nothing, nothing's okay in my life. And everything else is sort of neglected because this is the be-all, end-all. So th this is the engagement phase. Now, there's nothing wrong with this phase. I mean, honestly, I think most of us, okay, I can't speak for most of us, if you knew how difficult your marriage would be, if like at the front side, you could see the whole story and go, oh, we're going to have that fight and that fight and this issue that we still have, w would you really sign up for it? I mean, you can look back and say, oh, yeah, it's good. But if you saw ahead of time, here's exactly what we're going to go through. I think most people would bail. Most people would run. So I think this is a process that God uses to get us into this because he wants to help us grow. He's got something for us. So he keeps us sort of blissfully ignorant in our addiction so we can make this commitment and say, I'm there for you. Right. So why do people get married a second time? <laughs> <coughs> it's the drug. That's a great time, uh, question. Most people are slow learners. Um, and that's not to say you should not get married a second time or a third time. But once is probably the best way to do it. Um, I mean, there is, I'll give you just a short answer to that. I think we are fundamentally wired by God for connection. If we go back even to our first or second time, it is not good for man to be alone. And that was spoken to man, Adam, in the garden, who had a full connection with God. There is something in us that desires that intimate connection with another human being, that, that sort of transcends just friendship. So that deep longing 
to know and be known, to have someone else be a witness to your life, to witness someone else's life, to share the experiences you have together, I think is so compelling that even in spite of everything you've been through, you desire it. But then once once you have that relationship begin to kick back in, a new one, you've got all the drug addiction stuff going on in your brain. Right? You've got a dopamine spike, which is associated with pleasure and excitement, all that sort of stuff, and it begins to override any of the fears that you would have. It's a good question, though. Yeah. Follow-up? No. Okay. <laughs> um, now, for a lot of couples, some of the whom I'll see in my office, there's, excuse me, there is the lament about why are we not at this stage anymore? I wish we could just get back to how it was before. Remember when we just stayed up all night talking, when we just couldn't get enough of each other? I'm sure most of you have felt that way at some point, but imagine if you actually did live in that space constantly, right? I mean, you can imagine that the setups, you know, uh, the wife comes home from shopping and it's 2.30 in the afternoon and there's her husband sitting there on a Wednesday afternoon and she says, what are you doing home, honey? He says, oh, well, I was at work today um, working on my sales report and this poem just welled up inside of me. (laughs) And I thought, I have got to put this down on paper right now, even as the boss is walking by. And then the poem sort of turned into this musical arrangement that I had in my head. So I closed on Excel and opened up GarageBand at work. And I composed this song for you. Let me get my iPad out and we'll connect it wirelessly to the home speakers and I'll play it for you and we can dance. And then we can take a selfie. Everybody knows a selfie, you know? (laughs) And, And post it on Instagram and then tweet about how in love we are. Yeah, that sounds great, honey, but what are you doing home? Oh, I lost my job, of course. But we'll live on love, right? This is what it would be if we stayed in this state, right? It's, it's the en- enchantment that pulls us in. And the neurochemistry of this is interesting as well. That dopamine spike eventually goes down. Why? Because there's a serotonin, not really spike, but just uh, increase that happens. And serotonin is more associated with feelings of, this is okay, I'm stable, this is good, sort of solid. And why would you have that? So you can nest, so you can have kids, so you can have a stable home to raise them in and be a productive member of society. So you can't stay in the dopamine spike forever. It naturally go down, will go down. It doesn't mean anything's wrong in the relationship. Serotonin goes up and you have a stable relationship. That's the positive way of viewing it. And the negative side is there's nothing here. We've lost all of our romance. Maybe we should just get a divorce. Okay. But anyway, the first part is this engagement. Things are going so well. Then you move into the second stage, which we'll call working hard. Now, at this point, you're not sort of lost in the inebriation of falling in love anymore, um, but you're still trying to be that person your spouse thinks you are, and you're still hoping that your spouse will be the person that you thought they were. Because if we, if we go back to that first stage, this enchantment stage, you didn't really fall in love with your wife. You didn't really fall in love with your husband. You fell in love with an image of who you thought they were. Oh, this is who you are. And particularly, this is who you're going to be for me in my life. This is how I'm going to feel when I'm with you. And even that Jerry Maguire thing, I'm going to be complete. Everything is going to be okay. This is why we fall in love. I, I think you're this. And then this working hard, maybe, maybe I can still be this for you. Maybe you can still be this for me. I know it's been a little rocky and rough and it hasn't worked perfectly, but maybe, maybe we can still be this for each other. Right? So you may bring home some more flowers or cook a certain meal or 
try to get into what they like. You know, so as a guy, you may watch movies that have no explosions and no death in them for a while. Or if you're a wife, you may learn to play poker or get more into football. Maybe if I, if I love them well enough, if I step into their world, they will be this person that I thought they were. Right? And you keep trying and you keep trying. You're holding on to this hope, right? They can be the person I thought they were. If I love them well enough, try hard enough, maybe they will be that person. But still, underneath, this is why it's working, you begin to feel that ache, that pain, something is not right. This is not what I had signed up for. Okay. Then you're going to fall into this next stage, disillusionment. Now the working hard is starting to fail. Right? Um, I'm trying my best, but I can't be what my spouse needs. So you may end up saying things like, what do you, what do you want from me? Right? I mean, just tell me what you need and I'll, I'll, I'll do it for you. Or you go through the litany of all the things that you have done and why they should appreciate you, which is a way of saying, don't you see I'm doing everything that I can to be this person? Or why, why can't you be this person? I'm doing everything that I thought you wanted me to do. So the frustration begins to well up inside. A lot of times there's also a sense of inadequacy inside, what am I doing wrong? Maybe they're rejecting me personally. Maybe I'm not enough for them. And I begin to feel guilty and ashamed and I'm operating out of that sense of self and working hard to overcome that shame by proving to you that I'm the man or the woman that you thought that I was. And the wheels begin to fall off. Right? And it doesn't matter if you know this is going to happen, it still happens. <coughs> Excuse me. When my wife and I were getting ready to get married, we went through premarital counseling and... Um, Excuse me. <clears throat> it, was, it was lots of fun because here I was as a psychologist going through premarital counseling and my wife was just lost and, oh, it's going to be so great. And I remember talking to him, like, well, I think it's going to be really good. It's like, are you not excited to marry me? No, I am. I'm just realistic about what's going to happen, which was just a foreign concept to her. But we're, we're so in love. But even knowing that, it doesn't make me immune to going through it because we've gone through it. We see, gosh, you're not the woman I thought you were. You're not the man that I thought you were. It happens in some capacity to everybody. Okay? So a lot of people hit this and go, what is wrong with us? There's nothing wrong with you. You're just hitting this stage that everybody goes through. Okay? Emotions that come in this stage, anger, burnout, frustration, hopelessness, confusion. Here's one of the dangers. Somebody mentioned this, I think, last week, maybe the week before. At this point, you often turn to substitutes, right? I felt so good enchantment when I was when I was first with you. Life was perfect. Then we worked really hard to maintain that and be who we thought we needed to be. It didn't work. We get into disillusionment. I need something else to fill me up now. So maybe it's work, right? Work has some nice reinforcers. There are financial incentives, status, praise. I can control this. I put in the extra time. I get what I want. I put in the extra time at home. I don't always get what I want. That's not reliable, let me turn to this. Maybe it's our children. I'll invest in them. I'll get lots of love and unconditional respect and regard from them. I pour into that. I do this with my husband, he doesn't always respond. I do this with my wife, she doesn't always respond. Maybe it's a substance, whether it's alcohol, that is just a nice way to relax after work, and then you find, gosh, four days out of the week I'm, I'm drinking at night. And it's not that much, but it's gotten a little bit more, and I can't relax without it. Maybe I'm turning to that to fill in the void. Maybe it's a hobby. Something else to get me stimulated and stirred up that I can focus on. Maybe it's other friends. If you can't meet this need, I'm going to look to some, something outside of you. These other people, they seem to think I'm interesting. When I talk to you, you look at me like I'm completely boring. You've heard all my stories. You don't want to know more. Right? So we turn to something else. These substitutes can become our addictions. 
but the main thing here is now energy is getting drained out of the relationship. I'm not plugging energy into you so that we can grow. It's going somewhere else and now we begin to stagnate and it can begin to feel like death. This is the uplifting part of the talk, by the way. <clears throat> which leads us down to this fourth part, which, and these are just my labels. <clears throat> you can call them lots of things. I call this um, realization. And this is kind of a fork in the road moment. At this point, we've fallen in love. We think everything is great. We've worked hard to make it happen. We've become disillusioned, but there's still a little bit of hope. And then all hope is gone in realization. And this sounds really tragic, but it's the point of potential freedom where you see your spouse and you realize you, you cannot give me what I need. You cannot meet my needs. And you know what? I am actually incapable of loving you in the way that you need to be loved. I can't do it. Right? You, have a, you have an opportunity at that point, And you have a decision at that point. You can go further into your substitutes. You can go into a full-blown addiction. You can stay in a place of intense anger and blame this person for what they're doing. At this point, you've shut off. I don't care. This is your fault. You can go into complete disengagement. I'm disconnected from you. I'm bitter. Um, I, I, I have no capacity to look at myself. Um, and even, so time for this, maybe a quick time for this. Uh, that John Gottman researcher that I referenced, he says this is where you can go into the state. He has a little funny title. He calls it uh, the nasty, nasty. And this, yeah. <laughs> I, I told you it was about sex, right? Um, this is. This is that negative sentiment override where there's such resentment and bitterness built up inside. I can't see you for who you are. Everything goes down into a negative place, right? It is like a black hole that absorbs all the energy in the relationships. People are oversensitive. Everybody feels unappreciated. I read everything you say in the wrong way. I have a negative interpretation of everything about you. And we're just trapped there. That's where a lot of people go at this stage. And then we live out our lives 30, 40 more years, we're not going to divorce because we're Christians and we're miserable, but bless God, we stay together for the kids. And it's nonsense, right? You can go into that, right? Or you can choose a different way, right? You can choose a different way. If we go back to the realization, it's that I, I thought you were going to be somebody and you're not. Not only are you not, but you are never going to be that person that I thought you were. This is not going to work, uh, which does lead us back to the scripture. Okay. And this is one of the heart. This is part of the essence of marriage. So here in James, <coughs> the writer says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask... You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So if there is one way to look at what's the core issue behind this in marriage, you could say it's selfishness. Right? It's that I've put myself in the center of my life. I've made myself the protagonist, the main character in this story. And you're not. You're not. Right? If, if, we, if we look at this, right, what we're saying is, this is the story I want to live out. This is how it should go. It's my story. 
I want you as my spouse to adapt to the story that I think we should be living. Make your story fit with mine. Change yours as necessary, but live in my story because I know what's best. That's essentially what you're communicating with that mindset. But look what the scripture says. You want something, but you don't get it. Gosh, we've all been there. You kill and you covet. Now, the the word kill there, it's a hyperbolic word that means essentially hate, right? I'm so disappointed with you. I'm going to kill your spirit. I'm going to kill your dream. I'm going to kill your independence so you can conform to what I want from you. Now, this is very, you know, uh, dramatic language. But if you look at the small points of arguments, isn't that what you're often trying to do? I'm killing something inside of you for my own benefit. And coveting. I look around, I see these other couples. Why can't we be like them? Or, even worse, why can't you be like this man? He treats his wife. Why can't you be like this woman? Look at how she treats her husband. Look at what she does. And now I'm coveting something else instead of seeing the reality of what I've got. Remember, we fall in love with the image of who someone is. And now I'm saying, I reject the actual self that you bring to the table. It's not enough. And I'm feeling rejected from you, so I'm getting defensive back in return. Right? But if I do that, I will, I will never... I will never get there, right? Of course, you could say, well, okay, that sounds good, but what if I do have the best plan, right? What if I, what if I am right? And what if my husband is wrong? Or what if my wife is incorrect? Shouldn't I just keep pressing forward? And I think you know the answer, the answer is no. Because if, if you've won in that argument, if you've won in that decision, and they feel disregarded and left out, you don't really have a marriage, You've got a dictatorship, and you've got someone who's going to be rebelling against it. They have not been honored. I would also say it this way. At that point, you have a fundamental rejection of the gospel. Let me explain it again this way. Trying to push through for time reasons. Here's my, what, maybe six point, no, five point formula with this. You start with the wrong formula, right? Oh, this is going to work. I'm going to feel great. You're going to meet my needs. Okay, It's not correct, but I want you to conform to me. But the second point of that, it, what if God allowed it to be that way? And if it worked for you, then you'd go up to be this entitled, selfish jerk who would assume that the world did revolve around you and you'd have stunted spiritual growth. This is not what God wants for our marriages. So he's not going to let that continue. And then this part, you know, like you don't have... Uh, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In this sense, you would like spend, you would waste whatever was given to you because you wouldn't see the bigger picture, that it's about something bigger than us, that it's about my spouse and them feeling loved as well. You would still think it was about you and be completely off base. Fourth is God loves you too much for that to happen. So he's going to push you forward. Instead of comfort, he's going to push you towards growth. Right? Which brings us to the second point, also from Scripture. Right? If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Which to me leads us to a few questions. What is it, what is it I have to deny in myself? Right? What, what is the story I'm wanting to get lived out that I am clinging too tightly to? That I say, oh, nice words to let go, but I'm not I'm not letting go of, right? What do I need to deny? What's, what's the cross that I have to bear? Is it a sacrifice of my time or my freedom? Is it the discomfort of a spouse who's different than I am? Just, oh, it's, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm uncomfortable. Is it that? 
right? Is it, is it that they're different than the family that I grew up in? And this is not everything that I... What, what's this cross that I have to bear? And then what's this life I'm trying to save? It's my story or God's story? Am I willing to surrender it to say, I want God to do the work that he's going to do here? Right? So the heart of this comes down to, can I accept them as they are? This doesn't mean that you say everything about them is perfect and wonderful, but I'm fully accepting them and loving them just as they are. Right? Can I do that? Not the image, the real, the real person. I think I can squeeze all this in. Um, I, I do I do a lot of reading, and because of my job, where I think about deep things all day, um, I do a lot of like escapist reading too. <coughs> and so somehow I've ended up in some of this like young adult fiction, which says something bad about me, I'm sure. But I read this book, uh, Ender's Game. Anybody know this one? You probably do, right? Have you have you read it? Yeah, some of y'all read it. And there's a sequel. It's all about like this. It's like this six-year-old boy who gets recruited to go battle all these aliens and stuff like that. And there's this sequel that I haven't read yet, but it's called Speaker Speaker for the Dead, which is sort of an ominous-sounding title. <clears throat> but the author, this Orson Scott Card guy, he he talks about coming up with the idea for this book, and he says it, it related to his experience with death in his own life and funerals. And th- this is what he says. It's interesting. I grew dissatisfied with the way that we use our funerals to revise the life of the dead, to give the dead a story so different from their actual life that, in effect, we kill them all over again. No, that's too strong. Let me just say that we erase them. We edit them. We make them into a person much easier to live with than the actual person who actually lived. So I thought a more appropriate funeral would be to say honestly what that person was and what that person did. But to me, honesty doesn't simply mean saying all the unpleasant things instead of only saying the nice ones. It doesn't even consist of averaging them out. No, to understand who a person really was, what his or her life really meant, the speaker for the dead would have to explain their self-story, what they meant to do, what they actually did, what they regretted, what they rejoiced in. That's the story we never know, the story we can never know. And yet, at the time of death, it's the only story truly worth telling. That struck me, because I think there's a parallel with how we may think of those that we love that have passed on and funerals and how we treat our spouse. So in the funeral, we want the story to be neat and clean and nice. So we create a good one to say, this is how we're going to remember them. And in our marriages, we often do the opposite. Instead of giving you the benefit of the doubt, I give you the exact opposite of that. I blame you. I can't see the good things that are connecting. I want this story to be edited I want parts of you to be erased because it makes me more comfortable. So the question here, are we living our lives, seeing our partner's stories in a way that we'll feel more comfortable, that it fits for us versus the authentic acknowledging this is who they are, not the image, the real self. Can I accept that? Can I rejoice in that? Can I live in that with them? Which would take us back to authentic love then. At this point, I'm saying, can I see you with all your flaws and you see me with all my flaws and can we say we're still going to love each other? We're still going to accept each other. We're going to be engaged with each other and keep moving forward. That's the question confronting each of us. And this is, you know, you could also put agape love in this sense. What does it tell us in Romans? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we were the good man, as in the verse before, but while we were still sinners, 
right? So the summary, before I show this last video clip I want to show, we're trying to see the other character, your spouse, for who they are, not the image. We're realizing I'm not the main character in this story. I'm not the protagonist. It's about something bigger than me. God uses these stories to develop the character inside of us so we're not selfish and spoiled brats, that we're learning how to be graceful and see our own sin and forgive sin, and that I have a choice to allow God to do this in me or not do this in me. All right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show this video. Let me give you the setup. This is from a movie called Little Miss Sunshine. Anybody ever seen it? It's nice. It's pretty irreverent and um, funny, and hopefully nobody's offended by the content of this. <clears throat> but the story is you've got this family that's going through a lot of struggle. There's the wife character, Cheryl Hoover, overworked mom with a couple of kids who's just sort of lost a lot of hope and faith. You've got her brother, Frank, who's just had a suicide attempt because of great amounts of depression in his life, and he's this scholar whose academic career has gone awry. Okay? The husband, Richard, is kind of this guy that can't quite make it work, and he wants to be this life coach and motivational speaker. So he's trying to get his kids to do everything right and correcting them, thinking he's helping everybody out, but becoming disconnected from his family. You've got the son, Dwayne, who wants to be a fighter pilot, but is so disgusted with his family, he's just taken a vow of silence and stopped talking. You've got this uh, grandfather who got kicked out of his um, retirement home because he was using drugs, and he's got some issues there. And then you've got little Olive, the seven-year-old. And the story, the catalyzing event is she was like runner-up in some beauty pageant, and she's not like your typical beauty pageant girl. And then they call her and say, you get to go. So the whole family takes this road trip out of this pageant in California. And during this road trip, uh, lots of negative stuff happens. They've been stretched and strained. And finally, um, finally they get there. And nobody knows what her dancing routine is going to be except for the grandfather, who in the story has actually passed away at this point. And this is, um, this is what ensues. And hopefully I'll edit the profanity that comes up in here with a uh, <clears throat> quick uh, use of the uh, mute button. Ha, ha, ha. 
pray in a second but this to me this was it's the most beautiful example of what we're trying to do right you could see the whole movie this is the transformation of a family saying you know what i'm going to be there for you the father all about presentation and image and things being perfect says forget it i'm going to go up there and be with you and the mom seeing the hope rise in her and everybody just saying you know what we are a unit together i accept who you are i rejoice in all the absurdity and the silliness of it the question for us is, in your life, how do you get on your own stage, dancing around to your own super freak, whatever that would be, saying, I love you, I accept you in the midst of all of this? Okay, Let me pray for us and we'll stop. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness that you love us, that you accept us. And because of that, we can love back in return. Give us the courage to do that, to see beyond ourselves and love completely and fully, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.